I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 is where we will be. Last month, I had my annual physical at the doctor's office. And uh, that's a fun time, right? I went in and they, they checked me out. They took my blood pressure and my heart rate and they put me on the scale. That wasn't very nice. Well, then the doctor came in. I love the doctor. She's so great. She asked me all these questions, kind of some personal questions. And she talks me through my lab work, and she listens to my heart, my lungs. She does the full workup. And the reason that she does this, and the reason there's such a thing as an annual physical is because sometimes we can be sick and not really know it. Sometimes we might feel fine on the surface but find out that something else is going on that we weren't even aware of. In fact, we, we've heard stories of people who found out they had a serious and advanced illness from a routine checkup. My, my wife, she's a nurse in the ER, and she said one of the hardest parts of her, of her job is when someone comes in for something minor, and they find out something major is going on. And that's why it is important to have a regular checkup but I'm not here to give you medical advice this morning, okay? <laughs> you don't want that from a pastor. But I am here to tell you that just as we need a regular physical checkup, we also need to take some time to have a regular spiritual checkup. And that's what I want us to do today. Now, before you freak out, I'm not going to come around, see how many verses you have memorized, or check the wear and tear on your Bible, see how many verses you have highlighted. But here's what I want to do this morning. I simply want all of us to take a break from the craziness of this life. Take a look at our own hearts and ask the question, how am I really doing? You know, it's so easy, especially with all that's going on right now, it's so easy to go through the motions to just day by day by day keep ourselves busy, think everything's going well, and never stop long enough to realize that we might be spiritually unhealthy. We get our vision checked, our cars tuned up, our homes inspected, but when is the last time you examined your spiritual life? When's the last time you stopped worrying about everyone else and you just asked yourself the question, how am I really doing? Well, that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at a church that thought they were doing great, and on the outside it seemed they were, but on the inside Jesus says they were terminally ill, and this church is the church in the ancient city of Sardis. If you've been with us as we've been walking through the book of Revelation, we've seen that Jesus is sending seven letters to seven churches, and Sardis is the church addressed in the fifth letter, and it is no doubt one of the toughest letters. So let me forewarn you, today, as we said growing up uh, in the Baptist church, it's going to step on some toes, Okay. This passage is a toe stomper. And as I studied through it this week, man, I was really challenged by it. So I just want you to know, I put a little extra padding in my shoes today. Um, no, but, but I'm preaching to myself just as I'm preaching to you, and I, and I need to hear this word. So let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. We look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Sardis at one time was one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world, but by the time we get to this letter in the first century, they had really declined from that prominence, and they had become well-known for something kind of embarrassing. They were known for being captured by their enemies twice in the same way. You see, Sardis was built on a hill so steep that there was a section of their wall that they thought could not be scaled. So they simply left it unguarded. And you can see where this is going. The enemy simply found a way to scale the unscalable cliff, and that's how they overtook the city, not once, but twice in their history. And this background knowledge is important to what Jesus is saying. Because just as they let down their guard physically, they've also let down their guard spiritually. They they are sleepwalking, going through the motions. Another thing to take note of in this letter is that, unlike the other letters, there's no mention of persecution or difficulty in this church. Unlike the other ones, it doesn't seem that Sardis is dealing with compromising with the pagan cults or suffering under Jewish persecution, and that's great, right? Well, maybe not. One commentator, he said this about the church of Sardis. Content with mediocrity, lacking both the enthusiasm to entertain a heresy and the depth of conviction which provokes intolerance, it was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. Man, the church in Sardis was so spiritually lifeless, so comfortable and stale that they weren't even worth persecuting. I wonder if this is a lesson for us today. I wonder if some Christians in some churches today are so comfortable and experience no difficulty, not because God is blessing them, but because Satan has us exactly where he wants us. We're not a threat to his mission because... We aren't doing anything. And I believe when the church faces difficulty, when we face difficulty, it may actually be a sign that God is still at work in us. But that wasn't the case in Sardis. And so Jesus does three things to them in this letter as he gives them a spiritual checkup. And I believe these are the same three things I want us to see today as we think about our own spiritual state. Here's the first thing Jesus does. Number one, Jesus confronts. Look again at verse 1. Jesus identifies himself as the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You may remember from the letter to Ephesus that the seven spirits and the seven stars refer to the spirit of the churches. Jesus had previously said that he holds these churches in his hand. So he's declaring his authority over the church. He's reminding them, and we need this reminder too. The church belongs to Jesus. Blue Valley Baptist Church is not our church. It's not the elders' church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. 
And unlike the city of Sardis, Jesus will not be caught sleeping because he's aware of everything that goes on with his church. Which leads to his next statement. Look at this. He says, I know your works. Let's just park right there for a minute. Jesus knows us. And this is something we, we get conceptually. Like, we would all agree with this. Of course, yeah, Jesus knows us. Jesus knows everything. But here's what this means in this context. It means there's no fooling Jesus. We might be able to fool our church. We might be able to fool our neighbors. We might even be able to fool our closest family and friends, but you cannot fool Jesus. He knows. He knows your thoughts, your intentions. He knows your deepest secrets. He knows everything you do, even the things you do behind closed doors. Jesus knows your works. And because he knows, he has to confront. Look at the rest of verse 1 and 2. It says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Man, Jesus does not hold back. He goes right to the heart. He says, hey, you got a good reputation. You look like Christians. You seem fine. People like you. People respect you. But I see the inside. And you're dead. I got to be honest. This is, this is scary. Because what this is saying is that it's possible for your outside self and your inside self your public self and your private self to become so different that people think you're alive when you're actually dead. I don't want to get to that place where I'm living this this double life. Because in my time in ministry, I've seen this happen too many times. Someone who I thought, man, they're doing great. They're following Jesus. They love the Lord, but they're living a lie. In my nine years in student ministry, I counseled many students who grew up in church. They knew all the right answers, and then one day they get busted by their parents for living in sin. And oftentimes their parents would call me, and I'd get the chance to sit down with the student. And I would always tell them, i say, look, I know you don't feel this way right now, but you getting found out is the best thing that could have happened to you. God could have allowed you to continue down this path of destruction, but he has graciously stopped you in your tracks and given you a chance to choose another way. You see, being confronted by Jesus is an act of grace. And no, it doesn't feel that way. I mean, no one likes to get busted, to be confronted. It's embarrassing, it's it's painful, but it's grace. Jesus didn't have to send this letter to the church in Sardis. He could have written them off and said, you know what? I got all these other churches that are doing just fine. Forget about those guys. But he didn't. He loved them, and so he confronted them. He says to them, wake up. The house is on fire, but there's still time for you to get out and turn and strengthen what remains. So maybe today, maybe right now in this moment, This is your wake-up call from Jesus. Maybe right now as you encounter the word of God, you're feeling confronted. You're feeling that conviction. If that's you this morning, 
praise God, because that means he's not done with you yet. Conviction is a sign that God is still at work in your heart. In fact, if you never feel convicted or confronted by God, that may be a sign that you're spiritually dead. Because if you're regularly meeting with God in his word, then you're going to be regularly confronted. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts down to the deepest parts of who we are and lays us bare. So will you allow Jesus to confront you today? Will you allow this word to, to cut you open? Will you open your heart and pray like David in Psalm 139? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. But sometimes after I, I preach a sermon, I'll have someone say to me, man, it felt like you were just speaking right to me this morning. How did you know what was going on in my life? And I'll say, look, I didn't. It's not me. This is God's word. This is what he says his word does. It goes forth and it will not return void. So confrontation is a good and necessary part of our growth in Christ. Because Jesus doesn't just confront us, but here's what he does. Secondly, he, Jesus corrects. Look at verse 3. It says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Here's the solution Jesus gives the church in Sardis. He says, remember. What is it he wants them to remember? Well, he said, what you received and heard. Well, what's that? <clears throat> well, if you remember our study through 1 John, same guy wrote both these letters. And that language is really similar from 1 John 1. What we have received and heard is a reference to the gospel. It's the message of good news that despite our sin, Jesus has taken our place on the cross and risen from the dead that we might have eternal life in him. So Jesus is saying, remember the gospel. Like, that's the solution to all your problems. It's the gospel. He doesn't give them a list of demands like, hey, do this and do that, and then maybe if you're good enough, I'll cut you some slack. No. There's no list. It's just gospel. And this is something I have to remind myself of often. Because when I'm struggling, when I mess up, I want a list. I don't know if anybody else is, is like me. Maybe it's just a guy thing. But I just want to fix it, man. I'm, I'm a fixer. I think about marriage. My wife, she comes home, has a difficult day, or I said or did something dumb, which is not uncommon. And <laughs> I'm like, okay, what can I do? How can I fix this? Like, just give me the list, and I'll do it. And that's my default with God. Give me the list. All right, pray five times a day. You got it. Read the Bible to my kids. You got it. Increase my tithes. Uh, that's going to be tough, but I guess I got it, okay? I mean, that list mentality is what we call legalism. It's an attempt to earn our standing before God, and legalism is the opposite of the gospel. Legalism says, what can I do? The gospel says, what has Jesus done? Legalism says, I can fix this if I'll just try hard enough. Jesus says, hey, the repair is already done. It's paid for and it's credited to your account. What we need is not a list. It's not a new strategy. It's not to get our act together and pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's to remember the gospel. So often we think the gospel is just step one. Like we accept the gospel, we get saved, and then we get on with our lives and 
get to the deep stuff, right? Like the end times. <laughs> but Jesus didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that sustained you until the end. Now, I love this quote by J.D. Greer. He's the president of the SBC. He says, the gospel is not just the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool itself. I heard another pastor say this. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. You see, we never get over the gospel. We never get past the gospel. We just go deeper and deeper into what Christ has done. And this is what Jesus is calling the church at Sardis to. They had forgotten the gospel. Does that mean they literally could not remember what Jesus had done? Well, probably not. I'm sure they mentally could affirm some facts about Jesus. They probably still knew John 3.16 and they sat in their pew on Sunday morning and they sang the words. But the gospel had no practical impact on their day-to-day life. What about you? Is the gospel a trophy on the shelf of your mind? Or is it the compass of your daily life? Some of y'all missed that. Let me say that again. Is the gospel a trophy on the shelf of your mind? Or is it the compass of your daily life? Does the gospel impact the way you work at your job? Does the gospel impact the way you treat friends, family, neighbors, Does the gospel impact the way you're thinking about November 3rd and the upcoming election? See, when we forget about the gospel and we lose sight of our purpose, Jesus corrects. And this too is an act of grace. But again, we don't like it. I don't like it. I want you to tell me what to do. Be judging me. We like things our way. I see this. My my daughter, she's, (laughs) she's three years old. So my wife and I, we spend a lot of time, like, correcting her. Charlotte, please don't jump off the couch. Please don't jump off the chair. Please don't jump off your bed. She likes to jump off stuff. So we signed her up from gymnastics and fixed that. But sometimes when I correct her, she gets upset with me. And sometimes I'll just tell her. I'll say, look, I'm trying to help you. Like, I, I am saying this and correcting you in this way. It's for your good. And in those moments, I I hear in the back of my mind, oh, (laughs) that's what my Father God is doing to me as well. As we wander away, God graciously confronts us and corrects us. He he calls us to remember the gospel and his grace. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 11. He said his burden is easy and his yoke is light, so come to him. That's what repentance is. It's, It's not a dirty word. It's not fire and brimstone angry. It's to return. To repent is to come home. And to not repent has consequences. The end of verse 3, we we see another one of these pictures of Jesus. It's a little different from what we think about normally. It's it's not cuddling with a lamb Jesus. It's warrior Jesus, which we're going to see more of in this book. But look at what he says. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So just like the two previous times that Sardis was overtaken, Jesus is going to come unexpectedly in judgment. Yes, God is gracious and slow to anger and filled with abounding love, but he's also a holy judge who must preserve the purity 
of his church. Notice the word he uses. He says, against you. I mean, God is the last person that you ever want to come against you. Yet this is exactly what he will do for those who do not wake up. In verse 4, we switch gears a little bit. Thank goodness. So far, it's been pretty intense. But here's the good news we see is that Jesus doesn't leave us as we are. He doesn't say, hey, get it together and deal with it. No, he confronts, he corrects, and lastly, it's the third thing, Jesus comforts. Look at, look at verse 4 again. He said, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So Jesus says, hey, there are some in this church, even though it's dead, that have remained faithful to him. And he uses some pretty interesting imagery. He says, they haven't soiled their garments I don't need to explain that mental picture, do I? I mean, that word soil, it means defile. So some of these believers have, have kept the faith. They've remained pure to Christ, and, and they're going to walk in white. We're going to see a lot of people in Revelation that wear white because white is symbolic of purity and being washed clean. It, it points to something the Bible calls our justification. That's the act of God declaring us righteous, declaring our guilty record wiped clean because of Jesus. Verse 5 mentions the garments again. It takes it even further. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This book of life is the same book that we're going to see later that's often called the Lamb's book of life. This is the book where everyone who follows Jesus has their name written down. And Jesus says if your name is in the book of life, he will never blot it out. He will never erase it. It's permanent and unchanging. <clears throat> and this is one of many reasons that I believe strongly in what's called the doctrine of eternal security. It's a great verse that talks about this. Eternal security is the belief that at the moment of salvation, at the moment of your conversion, you become a child of God forever. Salvation is not something that can be lost because it's not something that can be earned. It's given as a free gift of grace, and the grace that saves us is the same grace that keeps us until death. Think about what comfort that is. Like, man, if you trust in Jesus, your name is in the book of life, and it's in permanent ink. And Jesus says he will personally confess your name before the Father and before his angels. And I don't know about you, but sometimes, sometimes I feel like I'm barely going to make it. Like when I get to that point where I stand before God and Jesus is going to confess my name out of some sort of obligation. Like maybe he feels sorry for me. I'm in the back of the line. My name's the end of the list. He's like, well... He prayed the sinner's prayer when he was seven years old. I guess we got to let him in. Guys, things could not be further from the truth. When Jesus confesses your name to God on that day, it will not be out of obligation or pity or embarrassment. He will confess your name because he chooses to do it out of joy. It'll be like a groom on his wedding day. I've had the opportunity to perform a few weddings, and whenever I get to that part of the wedding where bride and groom are facing me and I say, do you take this 
woman to be your lawfully wedded wife and take this man of sickness and health, yada, yada. I've never had anyone say back, well, I guess so. <laughs> Nobody said that, thankfully, it'd be bad. I've never had a groom say, well, might as well, we're here, and I had to buy this expensive tux. Now, I've never seen a bride say, yeah, you know, he was the best I could do, so let's just get on with it. <laughs> no! I mean, when we get to that point in the wedding, do you know what people do? Do you know what they look like? They're smiling, sometimes tears. They're happy, they're beaming, and they say, yes, I do. They joyfully admit to joining to one another. You see, the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. So if, if you know Jesus, then that is how he's going to confess you. He's going to say, he's mine, she's mine, I do, I take them. And he won't be obligated by my feeble attempt to earn my way. No, he's going to say he's mine because I paid for him on the cross with my own blood, and nothing will change that. It'll be like the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Remember the story? The son goes out and blows all his dad's money and wild living, and he comes home, and he has this plan to beg his way into being a servant. And before he could even make it home, his dad is running to meet him. Did you know Jewish men, it was very unbecoming for them to run. They wore robes. <laughs> it's not good to run. It's just not something they did, but he does. He runs, and he embraces him, and he throws a party for him. See, that is what God will do for you in Christ. There is no greater comfort than the grace of God, and his grace is, stands ready. For anybody who will come to him. So yeah, Jesus confronts. He, he cuts right to our hearts. And it hurts. He exposes us. and shows us that we need him. And he corrects us. He shows us the error of our ways and how we can't do this on our own. But then he reaches out. And he comforts those who come to him in repentance and faith. It's all grace. So let me end with the question that we started with. How are you really doing? Let me ask some more specific questions so you can think about this. And I want you to really think. Don't, don't think about anybody else. Because so often when we hear a sermon, we think about, oh, I really hope so-and-so is listening. <laughs> We always think about the other people who need to hear it. No, I'm talking to you this morning. So think with me. Here's the first question. Have you ever truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? I'm not asking if you call yourself a Christian or if you grew up in church or have a Christian family. I'm asking, have you ever truly surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you given up everything to follow him? Do you have a personal relationship with him? That's the starting point. If you haven't done that, then nothing else is going to make sense. So today is a day for you to give your life to Jesus. Here's the next thing to think through. Are you spiritually asleep? Have you lost your passion for God and his glory? 
mean, just think about what we're doing right here. Are you excited to come and worship God with his people? Or do you just come when it's convenient for you and nothing else is going on? Is it more of a chore? What about the lost? Do you have a burden for the lost? Do you actively share the gospel with people who have never heard it? What about your own personal time with the Lord? Are you actively seeking to grow? Are you digging into his word? Are you spending time with pray in prayer? I mean, are you hungry for more of God? Or are you just content where you are? So honestly, how are you doing? If you're not doing well, maybe there's areas to grow, which is true for all of us. There's no better time to turn to God than today. Right now, he loves you, he sent his son Jesus for you, and he's calling you to wake up. And when you do, there's no list. He's ready to receive you in grace. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.